The Fantasy Animation Podcast takes its listeners on a journey through the colliding and sometimes competing worlds of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Each episode, we select an example of fantasy animation and consider the ways in which it functions to inspire and use our imaginations within the sphere of all things that are sculpted, composed, crafted and drawn. To help support the show, please subscribe via your podcast feed and give us a like and a quick review. It takes no more than a minute, but it really helps us to grow our audience. You can also find our archive of podcasts and our weekly blog at fantasy-animation.org. You'll find the latest reviews there, features, editorials, all written by academics, writers, historians and professional animators working within these overlapping media, mediums and genres. Failing all that, tell your friends, tell a friend about the show and the good work we do here. There's no substitution for good old-fashioned word of mouth, so thanks for downloading and I really hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the latest edition of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I remain in 2022, Alex Sargent. And I will see you yesterday, Chris Holiday. And we're invoking time travel because this episode we are time traveling again. We've time traveled before. We're likely to time travel again. This is the sort of thing we get up to on the podcast. But um, the act of time traveling has never quite felt so important or as political as it does with our chosen film for today in the form of the Netflix produced and released drama See You Yesterday, a story which blends sci-fi adventure, family melodrama and urban reality to a devastating and poetic effect. Um, for me as a fantasy historian and theorist, it's a it's a story that asks a series of questions we've asked a bunch of times on the podcast about um, who gets to do, who gets to imagine in society, what the role of the imagination can play, both on a kind of, you know, lofty, poetic sense, but also on a very real lived-in sense, um, who the protagonists of such stories can be, and also, I guess, with time travel, imagining futures and past and what that might mean for different social categories and things like that. So I've got loads to talk about. Chris, those interested in animation and VFX, what have they got to look forward to this week? So there's a couple of sort of moments of, of CG virtual holograms and, and sort of visual effects within the, within the narrative. I suppose I've got little notes on, on the role of children, which I, I imagine kind of ties fantasy and animation together, specifically in, in this episode. Uh, also the kind of use of media. I was really struck by sort of the use of video camera, CCTV footage of black bodies and maybe how that plays historically to some kind of troubling um, themes that the film then goes on to explore. Uh, and also kind of overlaps between Afrofuturism, which is something we've sort of talked a little bit about on the podcast and um, kind of puzzle film narratives and actually Afrofuturism is something that um, I think connects quite nicely into to, to our special guests research interests so I'm really excited to take Afrofuturism and sort of throw it to our um, our guest for this installment. Uh, well let's get on to introduce our guest then. Um, the cliche is uh, she deserves no introduction because listeners will be very familiar with her work I cite it all the time on the podcast so this is very much let's put um, a voice to the name um, we are joined uh, by Dr Ebony Elizabeth Thomas who is a associate professor in the joint program in English and Education at the University of Michigan she's the author of numerous articles and books examining race and representation in children and young adults literature including her most recent book The Dark Fantastic listeners will be in um, uh, 
intimately familiar with it because, as I say, it's a real touchstone text on this podcast. Race and Imagination uh, from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games, which received the 2020 World Fantasy Award. Um, Ebony, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to spending this hour with both of you. Well, well, ditto. Looking forward, and I guess we, you know, to use the pun, looking backwards, because this is a movie that um, is looking backwards in two ways, I guess. It's a film about time travel and, and the importance of looking, uh, the, the importance of the past and, and the sort of the, the way time travel can interact with the present. But it's also a movie that kind of nods its uh, or tips its hat to a number of seminal time travel classics, not least we've got Michael J. Fox doing a, a cameo in the movie, <laughs> and I believe his sort of last role in the film. So it's a really fun movie, but it, a fun movie, but it's also a really, really important movie, I think, in many ways. So perhaps we could start, if you don't mind, by just telling listeners uh, why we asked you to pick the movie. You've picked this one. Why, why this movie and how does it fit within your broader sort of um, interests and research? So see you yesterday. Um was released two years ago and it was a time that I thought I would never see in my life which was um, the English language fantastic and speculative tradition telling whimsical stories about black kids and communities here in the states um, I was really thrilled to hear about it. So several friends told me um, about it once it dropped on Netflix. Um, and it took a while before I was able to sit down and really take it in. And at the time I was revising, still am revising, a novel I've been working on for 20 years. So every single English major e is either um, sitting on a collection of short stories, poetry, or we're all writing the same novel over and over because you really haven't published until you've published fiction or poetry or some form, you know, that's literary, right? <laughs> no matter all the academic writing that we do. So I have been obsessed with time travel since I was a little girl. Um, there was a 1986 Disney film that I used to think was obscure until the internet and social media were invented. And then every single generation X or, or early millennial had seen this film. It's called Flight of the Navigator. Um, <laughs> you're nodding. I'm I nodding vigorously. Alex, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I bet you are, Alex. I bet you are. Yeah. But that was one of the reasons why I immediately loved See You Yesterday because not only do I love time travel with an eerie element, but also I love time loops. And that was the very thing I have been stumbling on in my own fictional work, which is I'm an academic and not, you know, not, not a novelist yet, because it's really difficult to make those things work. And then the final reason I chose this film was because it seems as if, as I said in the dark fantastic, it is difficult to break the dark other out of this cycle of spectacle, hesitation, haunting, and violence. And so even in this film that, you know, should be escapist or should be whimsical fun, there's lots of humor in it, you still have some of the most pressing questions of race and racism in the West embedded in the very heart of, of the plot. So for all those reasons, I just thought See You Yesterday was um, compelling enough to, to chat about for an hour. I reckon, I reckon you're going to be spot on with that. I've got lots of uh, notes about it and I'm really fascinated to what you've, you've got to your take on the movie because 
I, I mean, we'll, we'll, I guess we can do the plot synopsis in just a second, but just to kind of bounce around it for a bit. One of the things that struck me, and I, as you were saying about time loops, is is comparing it with something like Back to the Future, which you can't help but do because the film even asks you to kind of do that. Absolutely. There's this kind of very racialized awareness one arrives at when you compare a time loop like something like Back to the Future, which is very much a story of kind of, I guess re re this film reframes it very much as a kind of story about kind of a privileged uh, version of time travel where the only thing they have to worry about is whether uh, Marty's dad's going to own the you know massive car by the end of it and the kind of what's at stake when doing time travel. Um, and there's, you know, Back to the Future is always talked about as kind of a very nostalgic text because it travels, you know, it, it celebrates the 1950s culture and there's this time loop which is about as much a celebration of the past as it is kind of celebration of the present. And when you take that story and and, and reframe it like, like CE Yesterday does, suddenly a time loop becomes a far more depressing notion because of course mm -hmm. um, black subjectivity's relationship to past and present and the idea of progress and the idea of nostalgia is all very 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 different when it's set in Brooklyn and not in um, Hill Valley so yeah like, we could start with that maybe how this film kind of treats the subject of time looping as as actually a, a rather kind of bleak thing because these characters are desperate to try and break out of a cycle that eventually the film kind of traps them within well there's an ending that's kind of ambiguous right but yeah do you, talk to me about time loops and how time loops play um into your understanding of this movie so one of the things that i find most intriguing about the time loop is that while back to the future jumps back about three decades um yeah. see you yesterday is literally about the near past and the near future. So the, the uh, expanse of the time loop is constrained in really interesting ways. And I'm still thinking that through because I haven't, you know, yet really gone back to the film to think about how time is played with or is itself a character. Um, you know, I've just fangirled it and used it as, you know, um, as an amateur um, storyteller, just thinking about, okay, well, how is this working as plot device? But I think the nature of time itself in the film is really interesting. Um, the screenwriters and Spike Lee, who's the producer who picked it up, the two screen young screenwriters met each other, I believe at Tish or um, I'm trying to remember what I um, read of their story, but when they met, they were talking about themes. So time travel, Black Lives Matter, and, you know, setting things in the local. So I think that while um, a lot of time travel no um, novels or um, films, narratives tend to play with the long um, expanse of time or a time loop. This is a constrained in both space time. So it's, you know, the place is constrained. So it's hyper local, you know, Brooklyn. And then um, also the time is, you know, you're just looking at the span of a relatively short span. I mean, is it, is it a week? Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to remember. So, it's about it's a only week. a week. Yeah. 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 That they managed so to go back it, to. Mm. 
that's intriguing. You know, I mean, the the um, it, it would have been a very different choice, right, to have the um, Calvin. Um, so sorry in advance to any listeners for spoilers, but um, Calvin um, CJ, the girl protagonist brother, is killed in an act of police brutality, and it would have been very interesting. You know, I mean, not at all. You know, I'm black American, of course. This is not. You know, I'm not saying that's interesting, but you know, it would have been interesting from a storytelling point of view had this happened when she was little, and then she's going back a decade or that this is an ancestor that was killed. That's Octavia Butler's kindred, or there's the trauma is ancestral. This is trauma that happened yesterday. And it's so clever that that's embedded right in the um, title. And I just think that represents some of the things that I was talking about in The Dark Fantastic. Like, you know, I the first, when I, before I came up with the cycle, I turned in an article that got rejected it was like sort of a soft reject. And I called it the sticky problem of the dark fantastic before I thought about it as a cycle, because I, I, kept, I told one of my senior colleagues, I was like, char- black characters are getting stuck in Western speculative fiction. They're getting stuck. And, you know, my colleague said, but you need a better word than getting stuck. You're an <laughs> academic. But I see this here, right? So CJ and Sebastian, there's, there's constraint to their movement. I feel even in something as whimsical and supposedly as limitless as time travel. So that's just really, really odd and intriguing to think about. In terms of um, the dark fantastic then and, and sort of this, the, this, the stickiness with which the film deals at the level of plot, one of the things that, that sort of we've done previously on this podcast, we've done um, Black Panther. And when this film started, when See You Yesterday started, um, it felt like it was picking up a few minutes after the end of Black Panther because Black Panther ends with with the um, establishment of a kind of outreach centre for, for children. Uh, and what I really liked about this this film was that it sort of picks up immediately with these two child protagonists who are essentially these scientific protégés who are going to sort of change the world, but first they need to change this very, as you say, very narrow, constrained period of time. Um, so I actually wanted to ask you about the role of... Because I was watching this thinking, well, this is just... this This feels... Uh, this feels Afrofuturist, but of course it's not quite. And I, then I went back to the Dark Fantastic and was looking at the way that you sort of position the Dark Fantastic into something like Afrofuturism, which which often accounts for quite a lot under that banner of of we are now entering Afrofuturism, or this is an Afrofuturist text, or this is now Afro pessimist, or whatever it is. These sorts of big labels. Um, and so t- thinking about the film as the, you know, it felt like these children could have come out of that outreach program established at the end of Black. There was something quite nice about the relationship between these two films. But I just wondered, uh, because I suppose I would think of it, oh, well, this is an Afrofuturist text because it's about um, black subjectivity combined with black possibility. It's sort of about um, progressive, the, the progressive nature of, of, of black techno cultures, this sort of um, the tr- using the tropes of science fiction to present black subjectivity so i just wondered how does this this film is very much a dark fantastic text rather than afrofuturist text or where do you sort of see that relationship because i know it kind of plays out in your book but it'd be great to sort of see where the film fits into that kind of relationship right so chris you really make a a great point that i hadn't thought of because one of the things i've been doing as a critic is positioning most 
um, speculative storytelling for youth and young adults with Black characters post-Black Panther as part of this Afrofuturistic renaissance. But I also wrote an article after The Dark Fantastic because one of the things I've heard from um, other Black critics, and I actually own this criticism, um, is that I did not attend to or highlight um, Black uh, authored text. However, Black creatives who have grown up in the West also both um, subvert and also and adhere to the dark fantastic cycle. I actually wrote a whole article about this, but it's an academic article. I think I that one was called Notes Toward a Black Fantastic. And what I did was I looked at, you know, there seems to be Black death as a sticking point within so much of the Western fantastic. Now, friends who study these things more broadly would say, well, inherent in storytelling is the need for conflict. And what is um, higher stakes than death, right? So like, of course, this is not about race. This might be about, you know, something else. Um, But I just think it's very interesting that I could have traced the dark fantastic cycle in stories even written by black creators or other creators of color, because we have all been inculcated with um, Western mythology, folklore, science fiction and fantasy that sees the dark other as monstrous. And so you are constantly fighting against and also um, reaffirming your own internal programming, I think. Yeah, and 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 I think that makes sense because I think part of your what your your book gets at and what your wider writing gets at is this kind of unpicking of of a you know a wider storytelling convention. I mean, fantastic literature is a byproduct of sort of European Enlightenment rationality and and you know colonial um, uh, structures, right? So so it's it's that makes complete sense that actually the problem isn't so it's not just um an individual problem it's uh, how does one write a text within a generic framework and embrace a generic framework that can you know that that, that has a fan base and is wonderful and and rich and 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 we can enjoy it and that's why we're doing things like podcasts and things chatting about it but at the same time it's kind of so indebted to these structures that it's difficult to kind of write your way out of them without whilst writing within them right you know you're kind of you're swimming in the seas and it's difficult not to get wet um so yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think the film, I, I I loved. I think the film's great, and I think it's really interesting. But I I I also struggle with this question of. I guess the question is how self-reflexive is the film being about these tropes? I mean, it's a difficult question to answer. But but I'm one. You know, on the story is you know for, for listeners, the story is very much sort of a, about this sort of inevitability of of violence and. This isn't just a sort of a black phenomenon. It reminded me actually of that movie, The Butterfly Effect, which is not a movie I wanted to think about on a on a Monday morning, but hey, um, uh, I did. Um, and that as a movie about kind of you know he tries to say you. I can't even. It's Ashton Kutcher. He tries to say you, oh, yeah, um, or make up for the atones of the past, and he ends up realizing he may as well not have bothered because it just brings further hurt and misery to everyone. And there's a certain mm similar logic to this movie right um the main heroine tries to save her brother who is a victim of police uh brutality and the more she tries to save him the more people suffer along the way and the more kind of innocent people die as well as her brother um and there's a there's a inevitably structure so yes it's it's a film that kind of plays with this idea of 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 
the inevitability of violence and the inevitability of white violence against against black youth. And I just wonder, like, is 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 it a story that we might lament because it can't imagine a way of doing time travel that doesn't involve these issues, or is it a movie that is using that to say something self-reflexive about? you know the inevitability of these things within black urban society when history is both there and not there at the same time an unfair impossible question but i'll ask it anyway what do we have no do you have actually i have plenty of thoughts it's not unfair at good. all good no, no, well that's <laughs> and, good <laughs> as both a critic and researcher and then as a would-be storyteller yeah. wrestling with trying to write this, you know, um, epic novel where you're thinking about, well, where would you set something that escapes the dark fantastic cycle? So one, you know, so see yesterday shows its inevitability. So thinking about alternatives. So I've seen authors set their stories in the far future. So, but how far in the future do you have to go in order to shake off the detritus from the present. Like um, Star Trek is not far enough. And I'm a huge Trekkie. I'm an open and public Trekkie. I have a Star Trek Twitter and sometimes Paramount, you know, evil corporations, but Paramount sometimes sends me stuff because that's how loud of a Trekkie I am. However, <laughs> I do not feel that in 200 years, we will have solved um, every single social problem that we currently have, nor do I believe that we will ever invent warp drive, at least not within the next few millennia, nor will we meet anthropomorphic aliens like who we can, you know, <laughs> I don't think that it's any of them. It's going to be a fun 200 years if we are. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Here come the Vulcans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's one, you know, so you got the far future. Then you have the problem of alternate universes or trying to dream of alternate alterities. The best one that I've ever read is Stephen Barnes's um, Lion's Blood duology, which imagines an alternate, um, you know, colonization. So it was part and parcel of like sort of an early 2000s wave toward reimagining like a non-Western present. Um, so um, Orson Scott Card um, wrote Past Watch, The Redemption of Christopher Columbus. Kim Stanley Robinson wrote The Years of Rice and Salt. Um, so they were imagining different. So these are these mainstream uh, sci-fi um who are reimagining what the conquest. Then you had uh, Patricia Reed's 13th Child, which was rightly critiqued by um, Native um, scholars and critics because it imagined uh, a new world where, or new world, Western hemisphere, where there were no humans. So humans never discovered um, the Western hemisphere. So it was wide open for um, European colonization. And so that was rightfully, um, <laughs> you know, um, critiqued as problematic, um, just erasing, because I mean, if you tried to, you know, imagine an alternate universe where Europe just, you know, like 90% of people were wiped out um, during the Black Death or during the bubonic plague in Europe, um, you could only be KSR, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson and write that book and get it published. If I were to write it, publishers would say, well, what, am I, what do you mean? This makes me feel uncomfortable. So thinking about the erasures that would be necessitated in order for our present, our timeline not to happen. Mm. 
And also the suspension of disbelief that is required for us to imagine alternate time loops from see you yesterday, like you said it in the far future where everyone has just blended up or where we've just got magically gotten over it because of the Vulcans um, and Star Trek. Um, or do you do what um, uh, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham did in the amazing Leviathan Wakes and just say, you know, this is just literally going to get worse until it unravels. So the next move is to mine the asteroid belt. And here is how inequality um, is reproduced. You know, so people think that's depressing, but I think that the Expanse television series and of course the book series, it's like so comforting because this is the universe that I know and believe. And I can imagine, you know, um, class and race and gender and sexuality based oppressions, you know, evolving into the oppression of the belters in 400 years. So just thinking about the expanse of science fiction and then fantasy, which is really what I like more, although I'm talking about science fiction today, um, <laughs> you know, you have the issue of racialization of magical creatures, beings, and races that we could get into. So it's like, well, maybe you could reconstruct a metaphor. And every time, a like these are huge giants of the field, people as um, diverse as, or disparate, I should say, as Ursula Le Guin, Mm -hmm. to George R.R. R. Martin, they, were, they keep saying, well, I had the wizard characters or the elf characters or the special characters. They were supposed to have dark skin and be black. The Targaryens, Martin claims, were meant to be black originally. Uh, but you keep running against the Western readerly imagination or the, the imagination of the Western audience that cannot unsee everything that's happened over the past half millennium. I think that that's a barrier. It's almost like the, the speed limit of the galaxy, which is the speed of light. So now that this has happened, it's like, this is something that I can't believe I'm saying on a podcast, but I've been thinking, I said, well, we can't walk it back as much as, you know, just like uh, the, Etrus the Etruscans and the, the Celts could not walk back the Roman empire. Mm. And Central Asia could not walk back and Eastern Europe couldn't walk back um, the, the Khanate. We can't walk back Western, you know, civilization or, you know, Western expansion, the transatlantic slave trade and the, you know, the, the genocide of the Western hemisphere. We can't walk, like, there's no way. And that's what a good time loop fiction does. It orients us toward what we can do in the here and now. It's very presentist. It's about time travel, but a time loop story is really presentist and hitting us over the head with, yeah. um, you know, what we should be doing now. Well, well, I love what you said about the kinds of erasures that would be needed or required to arrange those kinds of of, of timelines or, or sort of genealogies or, or whatever it is. But um, this is why I think the film is so kind of genius in the way that it uses that immediate that immediate time loop narrative. It's not trying to take us too far out of the out of the present. Um, and it's sort of that's exactly when we when you when we talk about race and when we talk about racist acts, we tend to gravitate towards the big the big seismic events rather than the day to day quotidian elements of racialized confrontation or tensions that play out and, and almost the film dramatizes that by having by having its problems replay over a series of or as you said this quite narrow time frame it reminds us that these events 
and, and encounters and frustrations occur in these kinds of spaces rather than a big monumental event like a, a, a you know a Rodney King or a George Floyd these sorts of day to day and that's what I really liked about the the, the film how it really mined because I'm similarly fascinated by time time travel and time loop stories and and that's why I really enjoyed how the film kind of marked a culmination for me f- between the puzzle film however broad you want to define the puzzle film and this sort of afrofuturist sensibility and then suddenly this film goes well of course if if you are going to to embrace certain themes about the the using technology to embrace uh, a set of of voices that have been sort of uh, I think um, uh, Derry calls them you know these sorts of deliberately voices who have been deliberately rubbed out energies that have been consumed by the search for lesable traces to imagine possible futures the puzzle film's the perfect narrative structure on which to hang that kind of desire that kind of impetus and it and I wondered I don't know but I was trying to think of Hollywood films or films where a sort of Afrofuturist or quasi-Afrofuturist sensibility unfolds within the context of a puzzle film or, or a narrative where we have these sorts of loops because it would seem it would seem a really great opportunity these things seem to go really hand in hand with each other of course if you're if you want to tell a story about um how to imagine possible futures you embrace that kind of narrative structure but then as alex said earlier it's sort of the futility of 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 that within the context of this film it's it's some films take as their narrative premise the desire to have a car and an almanac and this film is is sort of the real meat and potatoes of of what what time travel within this context might mean so i really liked that collision between kind of science fiction tropes that have their links to to the afrofuturism and then obviously kind of connecting up to the dark fantastic but then of course the hollywood's expansion of that kind of time travel and as we're now in this sort of multiverse era of intellectual property colliding, it just seemed a really interesting film to be able to kind of mar- manage or marry together that those kinds of themes with that sort of narrative structure. Yeah, I, 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 I was also struck, just to add to what you're saying, Chris, is that what they're trying to do, as you say, so, so rather than trying to get an almanac or trying to get a new car, what they're trying to do is save, um, I, I forget the heroine's name, but the heroine's, this is Chris's Jay's job. brother, right. Calvin. Yeah. Calvin, we're trying to save Calvin from this um, act of brutality by the police by being wrongfully shot because they think he's reaching for a gun. Um, a very, you know, a all too familiar story. Um, and then what they do is they go, okay, so we'll fix, we'll, we'll, we'll fix the small problem. We'll, we'll, we'll stop them getting... Um, having a confrontation with the police and that will fix that and what they end up doing is is in and and it, what it exposes and this is where i think the film is quite self-reflective is if that act of time traveling exposes the kind of glacial logic of of racism which is that actually fine you you stop them confronting the thing but then you cause uh, an unmistaken uh tragedy further back down the line because because time is built on on other things and history is built on on a previous trauma and and, and it just moves the problem back two hours uh, and create makes the problem even bigger by 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 trying to save oneself from one trauma one exposes a perhaps even bigger trauma Mm -hmm. embedded within Mm -hmm. the past so i love that it's almost like time is like um it's like i don't know a, a, a sort of piece of slate or something that you kind of break at it and the shards reveal itself to be there and, and and present and built upon one another so i think in that way the film is it is engaging with quite a quite quite a, a um a pessimistic but but important understanding that that the present is built upon these series of traumas that kind of sit upon one another and to try to solve one is to is to reveal another one and, and you can't 
there's only so far you can keep going back, right? Because you could almost play this film out for like 10 hours and it would become absurdist and they'd have to travel back to sort of, yeah, to stop Christopher Columbus arriving in America almost to sort of, you know, as you say, to kind of to really stop the problem, you know, where does the problem stop? And uh, that's because the individual problem is solvable, but the institutional one is not. So that's what the film is dramatising. That's sort of, it, it, they, the characters um, can solve, uh, C.J. Sebastian can consult, uh, can solve an individual instance of, of uh, you know, a, a, um, a figure of a figure on a program at a funeral. They can solve the individual pro- problem, but the real problem is is the police. They need to go back, as you say, keep going back and back and back. So I, I like that sort of yeah, that reflexive handling that an individual situation is, is solvable and manageable, whereas the broader, as we know, this sort of institutional problem is we we is is not is not solvable, and that's really where the film I think obtains most of its yeah most of its power. Does this, what does this film therefore encourage us to imagine? Because part mm. of what fantasy seems to be able to do as a genre that if there's a way of thinking through these, you know, centuries old convention, racialized conventions is that it needs to do better for young, well, for black readers of all ages. But if we're talking about young adult fiction, young black readers, and I, I, heard you say this elsewhere in sort of other talks that are available online that sort of it needs to be better for sort of inspiring young black kids to imagine so I I wonder what the film that's where I am left with the movie is that does the film offer any kind of optimism in what it encourages people to imagine beyond this or is it is its pessimism or is its bleakness ultimately that is that how do we get out of this if we're stuck in a time loop what do we, what do we do? <laughs> One of the things I think the writers of See You Yesterday are helping us think through is maybe there is nothing to do because one of the things that strikes me about um, CJ is that she is a genius. Um, So one of the things that um, I note that is fantastic about the film is not necessarily it's very mundane setting. So this is the black every day, but you you have fantastic, uh, you know, characters so cj and sebastian are geniuses so they've been able to do something that uh teams of adult scientists working for centuries have not yet done which is to invent a viable time travel machine and of course there's an element of a fantasy there um not saying that you know like our kids are smart they love you know science and experimentation and they're creative and so um I would say that CJ is, she's smart, she's fun, um, she's got a mouth on her, she just, you know, is bold, is brave, but she's all of those things and still can't uh, stop her brother's death. And then the ending of the movie actually mm-hmm. sat very uncomfortably with um, Black women who I know, some observers. It felt as if it were, it was yet another time that black women and in this case black little girls have to fix everything and you know be everything and it's still not okay it's our best isn't good enough and so i think that the message that the film gives is actually not as depressing as you know some of my friends thought i mean I loved it at first. And then I listened to some of my friends who are writers and critics and thought, oh, okay, yeah, I see how you're 
how you viewed it. And now I'm back at, well, there's comfort in knowing that there is nothing that we as individual humans can do um, or learn or say in order to break systems that are half a millennium old. It will mm. take collective action, continued collection, collective action in the now, in the present. It's gonna take a long time and there will be casualties that we just can't fix. And I know that sounds really depressing, but one of the things that I love the, the most about fantasy and science fiction is that its authors re don't really lie to us in their fiction. Um, more even than realism, I think that the fantastic tells us some fundamental truths about not just human nature, because I feel like a lot of my fellow critics talk about, you know, think about um, human nature and what it tells us about the self, but it also tells us something about um, how we are in relation to one another, because I believe that is how the self is fundamentally constructed. If you were the only person in the universe, I think you would be something very different than a self, than an individual. Um, I think that, you know, how relationships work um, and how we interact one to another, that's what I find most interesting about the genre. And even if the characters are all, you know, non-human, you find that. And here we're finding that even it, it does not matter how outstanding of an individual CJ is. And she is outstanding. She's truly um, a classic YA protagonist. Um, she can't cheat time, but you know, I think the film is even moving us to think more deeply than time. Um, she cannot break this structure through, you know, her intellect, through her cunning or through her will. It's it's beyond her. And so I think that can potentially be very affirming you know, depressing, sure, but also <laughs> affirming to know that, no, it's not some deficit idea about little Black girls that, you know, what is happening to them is not is all their fault. And if they were just more, um, <laughs> that the situation would change. So yeah. that's, how I, that's how I read it. Before we came on, I said to Alex, so I feel, I, I really, I mean, I really enjoyed the film and I, and I felt, I said, oh, I could, you know, felt it could be longer. Um, I really would enjoy it to be 20 minutes longer. And then actually, no one said that about a movie in about 10 years. So sure. uh, yeah. it's an interesting, um, it's a good point. But, 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 but it made me think, as you were just talking, I was thinking about a version of this story where you have, 20 minutes half an hour that that missing 20 minutes that i pined for about 45 minutes ago you'd have that at the beginning and it would be her discovering that she can do these things there'd be a few scenes in the classroom she'd cheat on a test and get away with it all this there'd be a scene in the in the cafeteria at school where people call her a nerd and and what i loved about it actually is ultimately that the film cuts all that nonsense out and the first shot is She's a genius. Let's just get on with the film because the film is not really interested in in that in a way that that other kinds of movies of this perhaps nature are. And I liked the fact that the film begins with this sort of CCTV footage, witnessing kind of spying on black bodies. But what I really liked was how it inverts the sort of. So there's lots and lots of. I liked the fact that almost these characters were taking a long, a kind of long-standing tradition of black bodies viewed through 
ultimately now CCT cameras, but also phone cameras. And of course, we know the importance of that sort of that sort of footage and the idea of surveillance and flip it round. They're performing for these this CCTV footage. And that provides there was an inversion of how a camera a surveillance, how black bodies might be s- surveyed in particular kinds of ways. And I like the fact that the film just got on with got on with it it didn't need the preamble and allowed her to just be that kind of character but i absolutely agree the ending i, I wasn't too sh- I, I don't know how i feel about the ending um it it feels like perhaps what the film does politically is this thing that i always wrestle with and try to write when i write um about fantasy myself is this sort of i always see fantasy almost like i see 1950s melodramas in that like if you if you read most 50s melodramas and acknowledge the fir- the final sort of minute and a half of the movie, you kind of have to acknowledge that, that you know, bigger than life ends with a lovely, happy family, rather than it being a film about, you know, a crisis of masculinity or, or the insanity of, of the household and all this sort of stuff. But if you don't, if you just go, well, okay, but bear in mind that's only 90 seconds of footage and what is the effective experience of the rest of it, you actually find out what the movie's really about. And it always annoys me. I mean, here it is, everyone. I do a week, uh, an episode of reference to The Wizard of Oz, and here it's coming. Um, so The Wizard of Oz, you know, when, if people tell me that The Wizard of Oz is a film that celebrates home, I just ask them to re-watch it because it's a movie that powerfully creates an effective experience of being over the rainbow. And so much of the vitality and joy and pleasure of The Wizard of Oz is in other spaces. So... For me to call the movie a film a celebration of home, just because that's what she says in the final kind of few seconds of the movie, is to do a disjustice to the whole the, the whole reason you go and watch The Wizard of Oz. You don't go w- watch The Wizard of Oz for the bits in Kansas. You go watch The Wizard of Oz for the bit in Technicolor, um, and that's what the movie's kind of really conjuring within the spectator. So I wonder if we could say something similar about this movie. The movie, you know, is conjuring a kind of um, imaginative desire for something that isn't this whilst at the same time acknowledging that that this is what we've got right now um and and i'm reminded of actually perhaps we could call it almost aspirational rather than inspirational in terms of how it deals with the imagination because i'm i I was struck by the beginning of there's a throwaway line but they say why they do say why they're trying to invent this time travel machine and it isn't they don't invent it to, to, to you know, to, to, to save her brother. That comes later. They invent it, they say, because they want a scholarship and they want to go to college. Mm, and it, it just, yeah. again, not to continually compare this to Back to the Future, but it just reminded me so much of, of course, so so in, in Back to the Future, we have a, a, a rich white guy that's said in, I think in the film, he's sort of has inherited an estate and he's just sort of spottering around inventing things because he has the time the luxury, the wealth to sit there and just do it because because he can. So that would might be what we'll call like an inspirational, you know, one one pursues a time travel machine because why not? Because I've got the time, the space, the the power, the luxury to do so. But these kids are doing it because they need to get to college and they that you know they want something to get there. So it's it's an aspirational form of inquiry rather than an inspirational form of inquiry. So I I wonder if you could think of the film like that. I don't know, like the film ends on yeah. a note of aspiration without without offering any kind of and uh, to compare it to another movie in this lengthy soliloquy i happened to watch what king richard yesterday the biopic of of uh richard williams and serena williams and venus williams oh, which yeah. is a movie oh, yeah, very yeah. much doing exactly what this film could have done and and shouldn't do which is that you know um that black exceptionalism that could be embodied within the main character right of of 
you can get you can get out of Compton if you work hard enough and if you try hard enough and if you have a plan, uh, rather than it being any kind of structural impediment to do so. So, yeah, that note of aspiration might have a have an important political power in 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 black fantasy because that might be a way of of getting our way out of this cycle. I don't know, Ebony, if you had thoughts on that. There, but isn't there like an element of the absurd, but also an element in truth of that? Because you just said something I didn't even rec- remember or realize. Yes, it's like they didn't invent the time travel machine to play or to what time in history will or in the future will I yeah. It's, I got to go to college, so I need yeah. to mm. create time travel. So that just goes to show you like sort of um, what it um, what is the saying? Twice as good, half as far. Yeah. And maybe not even half as far. So I was just laughing about that sort of aspirational black excellence, which is now a hashtag, you know, black girl magic black boy joy you know sort of and um i have friends i love who really have done great work creating stories underneath both umbrellas and other umbrellas but sort of the limits of black excellence um you know as folks here in the states have deemed it should be quite evident as you know (laughs) we banded together with white progressives and um progressives of all you know from all ethnic backgrounds here in the states elected the country's first um president who was not white or not you know like so we elected barack obama and then things just went downhill for us ever since not that he was a perfect candidate you know my politics are left of his but just that one act Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, led to some disillusionment on the part of half the country. We ended up with a reality show star as president, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. ways that um, in the, I I, I almost feel like this film would not have been made um, not only um, before Black Panther, but before the Obama era, because there's a lot of critique, disillusionment, and concern, ambivalence. I would say I'm more ambivalent than any of the above. There's lots of ambivalence um, around Black excellence. And we think about the, the limitations of a respectability politic that says, if you are the best in the world at what you do, which is the way that you can kind of opt out of the wages of blackness in the Atlantic world. So, you know, if you become Tiger or Serena, or we can just Mm -hmm. name those exceptionalities, you too can become, you can transcend this condition and we see it's not the case so you have this genius little girl who should be working at mit or caltech probably without a phd but she's still you know we don't know do we know did she get into college i'm trying to remember do we yeah, know yeah I, I, I don't think that really is it once once the, the sort of quest begins i don't think that's really dealt with of course so yeah right. yeah yeah, yeah exactly. they miss they we miss the um, event yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah well they miss the science that's the big that's the big sort of thing they get as you say they start oh, off that's with right, this, yeah with this desire to 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 do this thing for this experiment for for a, to get a scholarship but then that kind of falls by the wayside almost uh, there's again there's an inevitability of 
of course their life is going to be blighted in these sorts of ways. But this film is the same year as uh, the film Yesterday, the time kind of, well, the the the, the problem of, God, ima- imagine a world in which people didn't know the Beatles. You're right, people, white people do have it tough, you know, um, versus this sort of, as you say, this sort of exceptionalism. Rock, I love the Beatles. This Exactly, it, yes, yes, yes. Yesterday, I, I definitely... yesterday does not. Uh, there is, there is. That's the difference between yesterday and see you yesterday. That's there's a really stark difference between these two these two movies. But um, I was what you were saying about kind of the limits of black intelligence and also exceptionalism and the kind of recuperation of of exceptionalism or. or and I'll use inverted commas a bit, but essentially a sort of white narrative of the good ones. It's okay because this these black people are the good ones. Um, to my mind, that sort of black exceptionalism justifies that post-racial imaginary of what do you mean we elected Obama and Will Smith's a really popular movie star? All we need to do is get Chris Rock presenting the Oscars and we're golden. And it's like, there we go. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Chris, isn't Oprah a billionaire? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Beyonce, yeah. Jay-Z, like what are you people complaining about? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that sort of exceptionalism is is fraught with exactly those tensions of exceptionalism breeds, or it's uh, another um, kind of bit on the fire with regards to a, a post-racial colorblind imaginary and all this sort of. Yeah, but if we're colorblind, that's just it's not that the problem's not there. It's just our deficiency to see it. Can Can I ask about whimsy? You mentioned whimsy <laughs> at, at the top. At whimsy. The top yeah, at the top of the uh, top of the show, and and I and I wrote it down because I thought that was a, a really it's a really great word to describe the movie for about 17 minutes. And I'm not sure how whimsical it is after that when things <laughs> kind of get serious. And I wondered what your thoughts on whimsy were, because it struck me as an interesting word to use because where, where whimsy, well, whimsical storytelling and nonsense storytelling, certainly kind of in its traditions has had a certain political um, edge to it. You know, think of like, you know, Edward Lear or Lewis Carroll or people like that. Writing whimsy is not, it's it's not as whimsical as it sounds it's a it's a it's a rejection of kind of dominant power structures and dominant intellectual culture and that to me therefore that thought i'm quite a useful um aesthetic to use in a kind of search for 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 a new form of of black fantasy storytelling um and yet this movie sort of isn't very whimsical um mm. and and i'm i'm reminded of another uh i'm reminded of a wrinkle in time which was accused of being far too whimsical. Um, and I wonder if there's anything you've got to say about wh- wh- whim- is whimsy a... Whimsy seems to be something this story thinks its black protagonists can't afford to have because of the prescient concerns they've got. And that's kind of... They lose whimsy and they have to engage with the real-life violence of what they're dealing well, with. Really? I think that the story takes whimsy for granted because um, the whimsical generally in stories like this are represented by the community. So it's like within, you think about like the long stretch of, Mm -hmm. I mean, and I can't speak for, you know, literatures outside of, you know, out of English, but, you know, thinking about like, um, everything from um, I'm even coming across the pond and thinking yeah. about your own recent um, fantastic tradition. I'm thinking about Attack the Block. Sure. And, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, and so on the surface, it's like, you know, these lads, like what, you know, this is not really, you know, there's no whimsy. But it's like their mm. very culture itself is the whimsy. Sure. So I wonder if, and see, but I agree with both of you that the film was too short. 
because I think in a longer film where we did get, maybe even if Chris, they had taken it for granted that she, um, that CJ was a super genius, but still immersed us in the community and the culture. I do think that even um, our own creatives, Black creatives have always, at least um, post um, transatlantic slave trade, they presented our communities as whimsical because as points of escape, in the West, you know, like the only escape we found is within, you know, from race, racism, oppression, et cetera, is within the community. So one of the best um, scenes in the film, or one of the ones I liked was actually one of the ones that was not about time travel. It's like when we actually get to see what the 4th of July is like in Brooklyn, in those communities, because I'm not from New York. So I thought it was really kind of cool. So I guess mm-hmm. everyday whimsy, everyday. So it's almost like, you know, I mean, it's an, um, you know, there's, that's no difference than seeing, you know, everyday life in the Shire. Mm. Um, because I bet, it, <laughs> I bet the Shire is more familiar to some food, of the viewers of that film. Food looks better and, in this movie, though. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, the mead. I mean, the, I bet oh, the yeah, mead. Oh, yeah, all right, fair. Yeah. All right, I don't know. And the pipe, Gandalf's pipe. You're planning one hell of a fancy dinner party here. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, interesting. Yes, I hadn't thought about that. Well, actually, and that leads to, if we think the film's perhaps suffers from brevity, I guess, Chris, we should spend just a few moments talking about CGI and, and, and in the movie and its place within the film. I mean, I, if there's anything you want to say, obviously there's not a huge amount in it, but the two forms it seems to most um, explicitly um, be in is, is in the kind of very brief shots we get of them traveling through this sort of wormhole porthole and indeed in the kind of ways in which their technology is visualized. They put on these visors, don't they? And they... Um, mm-hmm. And they well. Do you want to start us off? Is there anything you burning would like to say about the, the use of CGI in the movie that you think is worth mentioning? Well, I suppose when I first when we when I first discovered that we were going to do this this film, as I said before, we kind of came on. It, it really did bypass me, and I and I'm I can't believe it bypassed me. Not because I have some incredible knowledge of all you know motion pictures, the talkies, nothing like. Just because I would have expected to have this is. Just because, yeah, I, I, this is this maybe is just before my Netflix subscription, so maybe that that's my excuse for this one. Um, maybe it's also to do with the use of stars because I think that's also really important to the way that the film obtains its meaning. Um, but when I was first looking up, I heard it described. I mean, it's an American science fiction film, but I was I, I also saw it described or heard it described as a superhero movie, and I was thinking, I'm not sure I agree with that. But maybe I do agree with that. And what form does superheroism take in the film? But it's not it's not that kind of superheroism, I think. Um, but then the scenes where you have have these two characters, um, CJ and Sebastian playing with their toys, essentially, and also running a business, sort of like um, the genius bar in the Apple store, you know. Um, other computers are available. Um, but just something around the domesticate... Uh, that see, the use of holograms in the film where they're visualizing their their work and and so forth didn't feel out of place for some reason it didn't feel sort of jarring it's very much like both the minority report that post minority report style of using virtual holograms and sets to sort of visualize the future and and they sort of do it in the iron man films i think more than more than most actually when tony stark is playing with with his um um, again, playing with his his toys and getting things wrong and allowed to get things wrong and and the, this this fantasy of, of um, white exceptionalism. So it's very sporadic and it's sort of treated 
treated as as relatively normal. A lot of the characters, when they there's a degree of ex- taken for grantedness that these children are geniuses, and by virtue of that, the film takes for granted that we that that our ability to visualize countdown clocks on a screen, uh, virtual holograms that the, the children are using to yeah to kind of visualize their experiments, aren't sort of treated in in a particularly extravagant way whereas you cut to what is it avengers endgame there's a whole 20 minute lead in while they're just flicking their little things before they go off and time travel through the space-time continuum but it's all very sort of pared down um but yeah i mean odd little odd little visual effects and and whatnot but i just thought it was a really interesting way of using those sorts of virtual holograms to, to give them a sense of this is how i don't know this is that this is how they this is how they engage with it. They're not surprised by their abilities, and neither is the film. Yeah, and I guess thinking about the issue that Ebony's book raises about mm-hmm. you know, how we can tell better stories, a more inclusive range of stories. If we're thinking about what you're saying, Ebony, audio visually, one of the one of the things we've got to reckon with is that in the world of post Jurassic Park, CGI technology is a key rhetoric if you will through which yeah. the fantastic is realized on screen and if you aren't if you're not at, if that rhetoric isn't accessible to certain filmmakers to black filmmakers mm. then because i i mean we could be but like you know to the, the obvious reason there's not much cgi in the movie is i suspect the budget didn't afford that yeah. much cgi right but but that in itself isn't a closing down of a question it's an opening up of a question because why is there not enough budget for this movie to be told in a more extravagant way. And I, as I say, that the comparison with A Wrinkle in Time strikes me as it's the only example I can think of of a black-led um, YA fantasy with huge, opulent, beautiful CGI visuals. And yet that was seen to be part... There was an extravagance perceived in that movie that isn't perceived in Avengers Endgame, as, as Chris as Chris mentioned. So, Ebony, have you, have you thought about this at all in terms of I mean, that's just a raw economic problem, but I guess it's a classic case of until black filmmakers are afforded the same budgets as white filmmakers, that's another way of closing down the imaginative possibilities of of black fantasy storytelling. Absolutely. One of the things that I um, was uh, troubled by is that most of the black science fiction projects, see you yesterday is not under this umbrella, have either been attached to Marvel or Disney properties where, you know, um, the black creatives project is kind of a spinoff. So of course, Black Panther was not invented um, by black authors or writers or comics artists. Uh, Of course, right, you know, later on, they became some of the greatest interpreters of the character. And then Ryan Coogler is now, his vision has really shaped contemporary audiences see the character but that is you know it's very much marvel it's marvel property and then on the other hand um the um black is king project that um beyonce did that i felt was very um afrofuturistic um in nature people didn't understand it one of the things that i want more of my fellow critics and artists to understand is that you know there does seem to be uh, hard mind. Now, some of them have told me they snap back, they don't care because everything's not for everyone. So I get that. But Afrofuturism, if you're thinking about scaling it up 
so that it gets the same audiences as, you know, Black Panther, et cetera, et cetera, without being attached to a major property. One of the things that we're going to have to think about is that a lot of it tends to be more abstract art. And Beyonce's project was like that. It was well received by her fans, but some African um, folks were incensed and they said, well, Afrofuturism is a capitalist project. And while that was a misreading, I think, from some of our, you know, um, kin um, folk on the continent, I mean, how can they be blamed for feeling that way? Because, I mean, everyone keeps telling me to sit tight. Octavia is going to be adapted. Um, we're going through the adaptation of um, Nora Jim and Nettie uh, Corfor's uh, work very, very soon. And we are still waiting. Um, we've watched many a project die in development. I mean, I've been waiting for 30, 40 years for that grand adaptation of um, Toussaint Louverture, the Haitian revolutionaries you know, the Black Jacobins, we don't have any of that stuff in film. So my concern is that if the ones who are going to have the dollars to, you know, for animation or for CGI, generally it's going to be attached to a project that's highly commodifiable. And what gets commodified in the West is, has has got to have some traditionalism to hang its hat on. So, um, you know, Black Panther, people were, you know, complaining that it was a revolutionary. A lot of my friends said, you know, what you know, why was there an agent in it? You know, um, they made Killmonger, you know, um, Eric Stevens' character became, you know, just sort of um, a caricature of what the Black revolutionary or Black radical tradition says. And I thought Disney has no incentive to, um, or make, I wouldn't even say, you know, sinisterly, they don't have an incentive. Some of this is they really don't know. They're not reading Black radical thought. They have not read Black Marxism. No one in the room has, except for maybe Ryan. And mm -hmm. but um, I'm just thinking, what are some of the hard limits to getting larger budgets for creators? Also, I was a little um, worried or sad that um, Ava uh, DuVernay's uh, version of A Wrinkle in Time wasn't well received by critics. I went and saw it twice, um, but people just really, you know. Yeah, it brings up questions of what source material can usefully be uh, race bent or bent in any way versus, um, mm. you know, green lighting um, original work that isn't attached to a major billion dollar corporation. Yeah, yeah. I find that's, yeah. That's, you know, that's really interesting, kind of the limits of Afrofuturism. Afrofuturism doesn't have that kind of access to opulence in these economic terms. And, and yeah, that that Afrofuturism, as you said, as a capitalist project or certain voices that need to then be attached to particular kinds of exploitative or exploitable exploitable commodities. I wondered whether this is the problem of, of kind of visual effects in this instance, because the minute you have something like A Wrinkle in Time, which which leans on exactly that sort of spectacular it becomes i don't know it becomes easily critiqued on the basis of being too much which is of course something that that is a descriptor that's used to describe all kinds of of of, of bodies and i was thinking about the magical negro and the sort of the way in which visual effects has contributed to, i remember that when we did the episode on aladdin with with will smith well will smith within the film not on the podcast just make that clear when we did the episode on Aladdin with Will Smith, with somebody else. Um, 
we were I think we were kind of talking about the, the the way in which visual effects is then used to sort of amplify and and make magical this image of the of the of the magical negro and I just wondered whether there's a, a, a there's a strange audience response to a, something like a wrinkle in time which is is the minute the technology the uh, affordances that are available to other kinds of movies are attached to a film like a wrinkle in time with a predominantly black cast there's a sense in which there's a resistance to that and the audience you know there's an audience resistance to to that sort of that sort of opulence that somehow they they shouldn't have access to that or there's something around i don't know what it is but I had not really thought about that in terms of industrial and economic. Uh, 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 who get who gets to make this kind of fantasy film? Who gets to make this kind of science fiction film before? And kind of connecting that to a broader industry discussion of of being in the room where it happens. I think we need to know more about what people dream of. So yeah. Yeah. thinking about escape and how you know our imaginations have been fed and see, yeah. you know, especially during our formative years, which kinds of characters or which characters are seen as indicative of escape and which are not. Um, currently, we're fighting um, some battles in one of the oldest uh, mediums, media speculative fandoms, Star Trek, over Alex Kurtzman's era at the helm of the franchise. Right. And He's diversified everything. So Star Trek Discovery, um, someone complained um, recently, has no cisgender heterosexual white men in the show. Now, Doug Jones is, but he's playing an alien. And um, But we have one of the greatest cisgender white male characters um, probably of the past uh, 20 years, like just playing a Western cowboy in the middle of this um, Anson Mounts um Captain Christopher Pike, he's amazing. I mean, and to the point where one of our um, amazing Trek fans who does, you know, a vlog, um, Jesse Gender actually said, this is actually a template for how not only are white men not being erased in the future, with this black woman captain, this actually shows a way forward. Like he's like not, this is like, he's not even toxically masculine, but he's very much a dude, you know, like, and like there's a way to do it, but even that is not satisfactory for that critic. And so that's gonna be an inhibitor um, in the future. I think the question isn't just about representation, it's about centering. So I think one of the things that some of the, um, the, the, the guys in the fandom are, are faced with is this sort of decentering of you know like not even as they're not even secondary characters what it means to be sitting on the sidelines sitting on the margins being the recurring character instead of having you know that avatar of the self straight in the middle of the narrative and um i mean if you look at other big budget fantasy and science fiction that's been greenlit you know you just don't have that in most places even the wheel of time series that just got cast there's some really good mm -hmm. you know avatar i don't you know i don't really have um you know oh well, there's a couple of characters who are i think black women um and that's some of the objection to foundation because because, you know, after Jared Harris, I mean, y'all know Foundation. Um, so uh, after Jared Harris's character does what he does, you know, two of the most important characters in this reimagining of Asimov, who is not noted for his character development, um, 
to say the least, right? Um, are, you know, are black, like a black, you know, two black characters. And it's like, wait a minute, when I was reading my, you know, foundation, foundation and empire, I read all those books too. I didn't even imagine those characters as black. Now I did write about that in the dark fantastic mm-hmm. that I think millennials and generation Z, because they had slightly more diverse media than I grew up with during my earliest years. I think they're able to see themselves into books that I just knew this is a good book. I don't see myself in it, but cool, you know, just reading it. Um, I think that that's going to be a problem because visual, the, the visual element is something people ask me about in the dark fantastic they you know when i talk about it they're saying well what is it a problem if the character i mean the reader is told that the character is a person of color but then when they see the person of color they have to then unsee all of their prior reading Mm -hmm. and viewing that Mm -hmm. says people of color belong in certain places I also think that's where you're getting audience discomfort, you know, even looking at some of the reviews, you know, people just don't like CJ Claudette, the character, you know, she's too fill in the blank. And that's fine because, you know, you can have unlike, we don't have to be, we're not all likable people, we're not all likable, but you know. So that's, so there are lots of thoughts. I just think that the next, the next, uh, I was about to say the next frontier and I'm checking my own language because that's very colonial, but the (laughs) next step really has to be thinking about moving the audience um, so that they will be receptive to seeing all kinds of characters and all kinds of ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really delicate, I don't know what the, the yeah it's a really difficult back and forth isn't it between pushing mm-hmm. a fan community on through the texts they engage with and pushing the texts along as a response to the fan community that they're that they're supposed to serve and and which goes first and which um which needs to be pulled along with them and backlash hegemonic backlash so yeah but that's that's another podcast another uh, one for another for <laughs> yesterday and that's how we bring it back to the one uh we're talking about yes so yeah maybe, maybe unfortunately maybe right now where as just as much as the film ends on a kind of this is where we are right now note where we are right now is that these movies they're released on netflix netflix is ubiquitous i'm sure this has been watched by a lot more people than an equivalent would have been 10 years ago these mid-budget movies so there is hope in that i guess but they are still um stuck in these to use your word i like the word stuck uh stuck in these spaces that where there is more to there is more to do um and there is more to do i'm sure uh on another show but i think this one unfortunately time is probably run up uh so i mean ebony thank you thank you so much for for talking for both introducing us to a movie that we might not have seen otherwise so so thank you for that and for spending time talking to us it's been a pleasure to 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 speak to you and to and to meet you over the last uh hour or so and and uh, really great to put a face and a voice to to a to a book that will continue to be cited on this podcast um when we watch more stuff thank you so much this has been so fun Oh, that's very kind. Well, yeah, ditto for us too. Ditto for us too. Um, uh, is there anything we should be plugging, Ebony? Is there is, is there your, the novel's not out yet because we're still stuck in the time loop, are we? Or is it, is a, um, or is it about right, to come out? Or is there any projects? Uh, can uh, listeners follow you on Twitter anywhere? Sure. Um, so next year, I have an edited collection out with my um, dear friend Sarah Park Dolan. It's called Harry Potter and the Other race justice difference in the wizarding world and that will be out 
from um, the University Press of Mississippi. So mm-hmm. it's University of Mississippi's Press in July 2022. So please do pick it up. We do deal with um, Rowling's comments and her stances that she has received a, a lot of public backlash for. And we did invite a wonderful trans author um, or non-binary author to write a chapter directly about that because, you know, the book's been in development for years and then we felt we had to address it. And we do in the introduction and in this feature chapter. That sounds terrific. I'll make sure to, to get that yeah. on my um, on my to, to, on my wish list. Uh, metaphorical, not not Amazonian. Um, so yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for that. And um, and and listeners can check that out uh, if they're listening in the future. Then they can check it out right now. If you've been provoked by anything we've been saying, uh, you can get involved in the conversation at fancy-animation.org. Write a blog post response. Uh, you can tweet us at fananim research f a n a n i m research uh, Instagram as well and Facebook. Why not? send us an email fananimresearch at gmail.com as well as that but otherwise that's been us for an episode and we will see you next time bye